0: Good morning. I think it's working. It's hard to know if it's working because I've got such a loud mouth. There's some things you're not supposed to say amen. You're supposed to just shake your head and say no. That too. It's an honor to be a part of this series, The Gospel According to and Walking Through the Minor Prophets, and it's been wonderful to revisit the minor prophets once again and follow through and then also read them for myself looking at the book of Habakkuk this morning I was reminded of a reality of our relationship last spring I was asked my wife and I both were asked to come and speak at a marriage retreat and my advice at a marriage retreat is simply From a practitioner's standpoint, I'm not an expert. I don't sit in a couch like Mr. Uh, Pastor Sharp here and give people advice. I simply make a lot of mistakes and figure out what I did wrong. But I started to reflect on it as we were preparing for it and calling uh, Brent a whole lot, actually, and saying, "What do you think about this? Is this good? How how do you think?" And he'd say, "Yeah, that's that'll work." and I came away with just a few conclusions in my own self-preparation for that in, in uh, looking over the 19 years of my relationship. I came away with like three pieces of wisdom for myself, maybe not for you, but especially for myself. And I'm going to share maybe a, them with you in the in the beginnings right before we walk through Habakkuk together, just in case, especially here. If you're interested in being a part of a relationship someday and you're not right now, and maybe you're a guy here that's, that's just maybe wanting to have some long-term relationship with a girl, I've got some real wisdom to give you after 19 years of marriage. The first piece of wisdom I figured out, it's the, maybe one of the only three things I figured out, that men and women are very different. That's the first thing. The second thing I I have figured out is that men see themselves in a very different light than women do. And I, I used to see this a lot when I would go to my wife's favorite shopping destination. It used to be at White House Black Market. We have a 13 month old now. Our favorite destination right now is the shower, whenever we can get one. But well, White House Black Market was also mine because it had a big chair with about three foot of magazines. And so my wife could go and spend to her heart's desire on something black or something white. And she had about a thousand pages of magazines to shop. And once I get through those, we know it's time to go get me one of those pretzels that's in the, the aisle way out in front of the store. But, I, but what was really neat about this was, next to it, was this trifold mirror that really women didn't use very as much as the men who were accompanying them to that store. And it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter if the guy, and I don't, know, I don't want to be crass here, but the guy could be 300 pounds in head-to-toe spandex, and you see everything from stem to stern, and he could walk in front of that mirror and look in that mirror and still look at it and go, Mm-hmm. Because I'm totally convinced the second piece of wisdom that men, we see ourselves as we are as good looking, as strong, as ready to take on the world as we were when we first were out of high school. The third piece of wisdom is, (laughs) it's not true. (laughs) And that may not be true in your relationship but in mine, my wife has to see me not as I am right now, but as I might become. Now, I know that that would be horrible advice to make decision on your relationship, to say, don't look at him as he is right now. I know he did have a job, <laughs> but he might get one. And I know that's dangerous relationship advice, but I have to confess, my wife looked at me and did not say, he is perfect, I'll marry him. She had to look at me and say, now I can do something with that. (laughs) And that's where I begin this reading of Habakkuk today is there seems to be this Song of God throughout the text, not just to back the entire Bible, where God continually writers talk about God seeing us not as we are right now, but as we will become. It's a prophetic word, understand it is an inspirational understanding that you can walk through those white doors every Sunday and God is still seeing you not as you are right now, but as you will become. But I'm still left baffled at these passages because from a distance when I read in Habakkuk, God is replying here and we're going to address it in a moment. God is saying, Here's some things that's going to happen to you. And here's some things that I'm going to do. I'm baffled because when we see the the text, we see the very end. And so we don't feel the pain. We don't feel anything. We just see promises of God and we see words of God. And I know in the end, I feel removed from the gravity of the pain that someone's feeling when they hear promises from prophets, promises from God. And that's where we are in Genesis or Habakkuk 2.1. The prophet in his oracle screams out, begins 2, verse 1. Oh Lord, if you have a Bible, turn with me. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? You will not listen or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Opens the Tire writing with this protest and we find ourselves at this moment at this writing at the closing in about 600 years before christ and we see a people who began as a theocratic society but soon looking around at the cultures around them said we'd like to be like all of them so give us a structure give us a culture and give us a king that looks kind of like them and god said i'm warning you A king will tax you, will let you down, will take your wealth, will take your sons for war, your daughters for marriage, and so on. And eventually God acquiesced to their needs for a king and provided them a king. And from then on, from Saul on, you start to see a culture that devolves into this chaos that resembles the cultures all around them. One people split into two, now they're two, and now we are one of the two, Judah, in this reading. And where we stand in this reading in Habakkuk is Josiah was a good king but was killed in battle and they put another king in his place. He didn't last long. He went into Jehoahaz was sent into exile and ultimately ending in death. And now this really bad king is in his place, Jehoiakim. Now this guy, history will tell you, was a horrible, horrible person. He was a puppet king for whoever he, whoever he would whoever would keep him there. He protected his his his, uh, his throne at all costs. There are all kinds of stories about him, his behavior, his puppetry. He sold his own people out. His history accuses him of all kinds of atrocities, murder, plunder of his own families, plunder of his the wealth of his people. He would tax them into total starvation. He would eventually be killed. And Jeremiah even wrote of him, said this king is so bad, he's going to get the burial of a donkey. Matter of fact, he did because he flipped sides so much that when Babylon came back, they took his body and threw it over the wall. He got the burial of a donkey. The cry of the prophet is we sometimes forget this cry right here. We think always is we pit the white hat against the black hat. The good guy, Israel or Judah and the bad guy. The Arians, whatever country, the Arians, Philistines, the Syrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, whoever, bad guy. This is not what this is about. The prophet is saying, the evil ones are here among us. And how long, God, are you going to put up with it? This entire passage is looked through the lens of covenant because this people... Are different than the other people it goes all the way back is that's why he's frustrated. that's why he's complaining is because hidden in the ethos of this culture these people they are not just a culture with a king and with a political structure they are a culture that was founded on this covenant between God and his people this Deuteronomic covenant, matter of fact, it's a vassal treaty. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, it is, its structure is very similar to a vassal treaty of the day of where a king would make this treaty with his people and say, if you do this, I will do this. And if I do this, I rule you do this. If you do not do this, I cannot do this. It was an agreement between this. I will be your God and you will be my people. It was a covenant. And that covenant said you wake up in the morning and you teach your kids this you write it on the doorpost you tell everyone this is your covenant and this this ethos like was ingrained in this culture it's what made them different they were not like any other culture because they weren't embodied from an agreement from a king to his people matter of fact the king was simply someone who politically organized at the end of the day the prophet was telling you your real king is this invisible god that you're in covenant with That is springing up from within the prophet Habakkuk. Everyone knows this. And so this protest is bold because it stems from an assumption. These are the people of God. We are a people of covenant. So he continues with this protest. Verse 3, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. Some writers even discuss that this is bribery. Bribery was rampant among the judges of the people that the common people never received justice. This indignant prophet knows that covenant has been broken and what made these people different no longer exists. Worse yet, they've become a shell of culture with no substance. Judah is now a people of covenant in word only, in history only. But they're really like every other culture around them. A corrupt king, corrupt judges. Huge gaps between the haves and have-nots. They look like everyone else. So God responds. And let me tell you, I don't really like God's response. I'm really uncomfortable with God's response every time in the book of Habakkuk. Do you know why? It stems back to Bob Barry. Does everybody know who Bob Barry was? God rest his soul. Bob Barry was the radio announcer for the Oklahoma Sooners. And you know what drove me nuts about Bob Barry? I would have to listen to him because we lived away. I'm an Oklahoma Sooners fan because I went to a school there and I, uh, we, we lived away from Oklahoma, and so I would have to get on the radio and find the Oklahoma Sooners, so I could hear them in the, in the late 90s, so I could hear them get killed by somebody else. But Bob Berry had this t- terrible habit where he would get as excited describing the actions of the opponent <laughs> as he would our own team. And so I'd hear him say, and the ball is intercepted, and he's at the 50. He's at the 40. He's at the 30. He's at the 20. He's at the 10. He's at the 5. Touchdown, Nebraska! I'm like, really? How many remember Bob Barry doing anything like that? God says... Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. For the work is being done in your days that you would not believe if it were told. I am rousing the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Their dread, their fearsome, their justice, their dignity proceed from the self. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Their horses come from far away. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence with faces pressing forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff of rulers. They make sport. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up earth and take it. Then they sweep like the wind. They transgress and become guilty. Their own might is their own God. i beg, mean, wait God, hold on a second. The cry for justice from the prophet got answered by saying, all of a sudden God's telling him, there's a geopolitical strife about to happen. And it's about to get cleansed. Matter of fact, this geopolitical str- struggle between Egypt, Babylon, then Egypt and Babylon again, there's a people of God smack dab in the middle of it. And so, so Habakkuk, like a good prophet should, pivots, right? And he says, oh, okay, then, then now I've told you to judge the unrighteousness among us, but when you are judging the righteous among us, what are you going to do about the unrighteous that are judging the unrighteous among us? What are you going to do about the Babylonians? Are you not from of old? O Lord my God, you shall not die. O Lord, you've marked them for judgment and you, O rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil and you cannot look on wrongdoing. You, he says, cannot even just not tolerate wrongdoing. You can't see it. So once all of this comes upon our people, I know you well enough too that you're not even going to tolerate that either. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You've made people like the fish of the sea, like quarreling things that have no ruler. This prophet can't make up his mind. First of all, he comes with this oracle of complaint saying, take care of the issues. God says, I am. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, but once you do, what are you going to do about those coming in to take care of the issues? And God responds in chapter 2 Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. And then he tells a narrative in chapter 2. Alas for you who heap up on your own, that steal. Alas for you who get evil gain from your house, dishonesty. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed, violence. Alas for you who make your neighbors drink, irresponsibility and morality. Alas for you who say to the wood, Wake up, idolaters. Rouse yourself, can it teach? See, it is gold and silver plated and there's no breath in it at all. In chapter two, verse 20 says, but the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He's telling a story. I'm going to let the Chaldeans come and do what they do. But as they're doing what they're doing, you're going to see them deconstruct from within. And you're going to get a front row seat. As the people you want it to be like, you're going to watch... The fruit of theft, the fruit of dishonesty, of violence, of immorality and irresponsibility, of idolatry, you're going to watch it as it crumbles this culture from within. You're going to watch it. So, not only am I just enough to come in and cleanse out my people, I'm just enough to let you see what happens to those that are unjust as well. But it's still hard to understand these passages. You know why? Even though God is saying, sit back and watch, the Chaldeans come in and cleanse out the people of covenant, and then God's going to reap judgment on the Chaldeans for what they did to His people. This sit back and watch, these people weren't in bleachers watching this. They were receiving this so we see an entire entire cycle of justice. God cleansing his people through outside oppression. Then God saves the oppressed by overturning the oppressor. Meanwhile, Judah, who was trying to live like the oppressor, got a front row seat to watch the total implosion of the oppressor. Then the scene, though, is not watched from the bandstand. All the while, everyone is impacted. Some die, others tortured. Everyone is changed forever. Never the same. God cleans out the evil. I'm doing that by allowing evil to swallow up evil. But God, some other people are getting hurt too. I know. If God cares so much about salvation, why do some live and some die? Why does judgment on some splash out and hit others? Why can't God perform surgical strikes and use smart Babylonians and only hit the bad guys while the good guys stand and watch on the rooftop? Don't stick around and continue to take innocence into captivity it seems like this is unjust and unfair and i just don't understand it why does the god who is good why does the god who is good make promises that don't happen for not decades sometimes centuries and tell us seemingly with a straight face it's going to be okay really because oftentimes times our perspective is limited salvation is sometimes seen as utilitarian or an ethic it's it's a behavioral modification method that we got to complete its work now in the next 10 or 15 years i need all the salvation work that god is going to do in the church to be done in me in 60 days or less because i have a life to live god and i need to live it and what good is all of this? How can I trust that you're really able to save me if I don't see it and approve it and sign off on it? How am I able to see what you're doing here when you say I'm going to do a work, but maybe that work takes 100 years and I only have 10 years left to live? What if you say, God, I'm going to do it? You hear God say, I'm going to do a great work among you, and yet my children are impacted by the the the... the the tragedy that's happening around me right now, not then, now. See, timelines are difficult if you see the words of God through your own 75. Because salvation takes way too long then. timelines are difficult when you're talking about God and hearing his voice if you're merely seeing the promises of God as something I can control I can implement an ethic that I can live there are ethics to all of this there is morality and there are choices to all of this but let me tell you the work of God and what God is doing is bigger than me and it's bigger than you and it's bigger than all of us Then what do I do about it? Because justice seems really weird. Salvation is messy. God's voice looks replete of empathy and and compassion. What brings me to this first thing, I used to hear this all the time when we pastored in Austin. We lived in a building downtown. Some of our closest friends still live in Austin, but some of my friends, we'd go to dinner and they wouldn't come to our church, but we were good friends. And they uh, were too... they're too logical, you know, right, to believe in a God, and they they were too logical, and uh, we had a paleontologist neighbor, and he was like, Nate, I only have, I'm jealous of you sometimes because I only have the the option of when I see bones and things, is to see that and, and take and observe and report. It's like, that's what you do. You observe and report on bones that you know really don't know the origin of them. There's no faith involved in what you do, whatsoever. But here's the second thing they would say, would say, I think that you're a part of religion because it provides clarity and purpose to the disorganization of life. That person is an idiot. You know, sometimes our walk with God throws our clarity and purpose so far out the window because God is asking us to walk by faith. You think you have your entire life planned out and you have it figured out and then you come to God and then you say, God, do whatever you want with me. You don't mean it, but you think you're supposed to say it and you say do whatever you want and then he actually does whatever he wants to do with you and you're saying, God, I thought I was supposed to get clarity from religion. The paleontologist in my building said that's what religion's purpose is. I don't feel like I have clarity. I don't feel like I have purpose. I don't feel like I belong, what I'm doing. What? Where? How? Why? 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 In the back it closes. This book with a prayer. He says, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the field, and there was no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. We see a circle complete in Habakkuk we see the prophet doing two things. The first thing is this. He's showing us what real praise is all about. Praise is not just make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Praise is not just proclaiming, I am a friend of God. Praise is not coming and saying, the devil had me Monday through Saturday. But I'm here. I'm here to step on the devil for the next 45. Sometimes praise is, why? God. Sorry to scream for all of you who don't like that. Sometimes praise is, I don't understand. Sometimes praise is, what are you doing? Habakkuk is showing us that praise is the honest reflection of someone who truly trusts and knows God and knows what he is and what he is capable. And so he comes to him and says, I have some mystery. I have some questions. And God responds to that and says, what you're doing pleases me. And I'm here to tell someone here today, the first reflection from the book of Habakkuk is when you come here and do not understand what you're going through and do not understand what is happening in your life. And you're complaining and say, God, I feel like the heaven is like brass and I, I can't get through. That is, I'm telling you, is every bit as much praise as when you come and raise your hand and make, a, and make a smile. Yes, you should smile. Yes, you should enjoy all of those things. But I'm telling you that when you say, I don't understand, I don't know where I am, I have no understanding about how to be a parent, how to be a spouse, why did I lose my job? God, help me. I thought you were here. Every time you bring those to God, I'm here to tell you that is Praise. Because we are admitting we serve of God who's capable and able to do whatever He desires and beyond my imagination and beyond my hills of ownership God owns and knows. That's praise. The second thing He's telling us is the prophets defending and I'm about done. The prophet is not just praising. In his complaint about his people. and his complaint about the Chaldeans. And then in his acceptance. Knowing that we're about to get hit. But I trust you. He's also. Defending. And I think that's our greatest fear. He's not defending God. God needs no defense. The prophet is defending the innocent. Because in the injustice and brokenness that resides in God's people and those who are attacking God's people, when restoration happens, innocence is always, it seems to be impacted. And Habakkuk is saying, I'm defending the innocence here. That when we see you come and cleanse your people, the innocent are going to be impacted. I think inside of every one of us, there's a Habakkuk screaming. How long, God, can I endure the brokenness within me? And when the pain happens within to me or around me, how long can I endure it? And I know that while I could say everything works out in the end, God, I cannot help but confess there's some innocence that's being hit inside of me. That when we say God cleanse this church and make our worship more pure and make it this and that, that God do that, that somehow the innocence of just joy to come and Sunday in worship, the innocent of my daughter does not know that it is not okay to throw food around a restaurant right now. She does not know. Eventually she will know. The fear is is that while God is impacting the brokenness within us and within the church and around us, that there is going to be a death also to some innocence, almost as if you know the tricks of the magician and you lose the childlike awe of the trick. And so you're left, you're afraid of being left. That what happens if, yeah, we're a good church now, but I forgot what childlike joy is all about. I forgot that it's okay to be innocent. There's a fear. So I'm here to tell us the purpose of God is simply this. Not just your brokenness, God is going to heal. Not just our frailties, God is going to lift. But our innocence, God is going to restore. So what we see is, we know that when we look at the book of Habakkuk that God is restoring We know and trust that on the other side of protest, God is restoring. So I can trust him with my innocence. We know that even though it seems like God confuses on the other side of that confusion, God is still inside of it and above it, God is still restoring. We know that even though it looks and is seeming that God is judging all around, God is still restoring. Restoring. We know that as we're screaming out to God in our own way, we know God's listening even after we give another lost and anxious call to Him. But in that listen, God is restoring. In the silence, in the poem, in your disgust, in your pain, in your joy, in your victories, in your losses, in your relationships, I'm here to simply tell you that even if you don't see it now, the timeline is not just your 75, this thing is way bigger than we can even imagine. I'm here to tell you with my own words, God is restoring, that no matter how you feel, no matter where you are, no matter what you were walking through, no matter the timeline you are on, no matter how high you feel on the mountaintop or how low you feel in the valley, you can have hope today and trust that God is restoring. So I close with this. The gospel according to Habakkuk is that even when we don't understand and can't see nor understand that the central promise of God remains the same. I am restoring.